Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, can the United States Postal Service survive in the digital age? In America, of all letters delivered, 60% are actually direct mail advertising and only 3% are people writing to each other. Clearly, what people need to participate in the modern economy is more an internet connection than access to post boxes and so on. And how resilient is China's economy in the face of a possible trade war? The economy really has been firing, if not on all cylinders, certainly on a lot of cylinders for the last couple of years. First, shares in the advertising giant WPP fell by 7% on Monday as investors responded to the departure of its CEO, Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin, who founded WPP 33 years ago, resigned after an investigation into an allegation of personal misconduct which he has unreservedly denied. The board is under pressure to publish the details of the investigation. Gaddy Epstein, our media editor, is on the line from New York. Gaddy, what do we know about the situation? Uh, well, we know about that much, which is that there was, there was an allegation of personal misconduct. We don't know the specifics of it. There has been a mention, an accusation of misuse of company funds, which he has specifically denied. But beyond that, Sir Martin's personal team say they don't even know what the details might be uh, or even who the whistleblower is. Sir Martin is very, very intertwined with the way this company has developed and grown. He's been at it for a long time and he personally shaped it, didn't he? So how is it going to cope without him? I think that's going to be a major problem and that's why you see the shares responding as they are today. He uh, has been singularly in charge of this company. He built it. He's probably the only person who fully understands the company. They've made so many acquisitions over the years, many, many acquisitions, big and small. The strategy of the company has morphed over the years. It's become global under his watch. And uh, I think there's probably very few people at the company who understand really fully how it operates. Some people think only him. And he had not made any succession plans. He had not groomed anybody to take his his job because he doesn't feel um, anywhere close to ready to to be done in this business. Who is going to take over? So there's two uh, people under him who will take over as co-chief operating officers, and the chairman of the board will become executive chairman. It's essentially an emergency situation. It's not. This is not exactly how it's going to look. This is quite clearly shows that they were not prepared for this. This, this is a pretty sudden turn of events for WPP. So the advertising industry is one that's gone through really wrenching changes over the last few years, and it can expect some more now. Can you give us a little sense of where WPP is at compared with its industry peers and where you think it's going to have to go? WPP was, you know, it is the giant in the advertising industry. But in terms of reckoning with the changing of of the guard and how advertising is done, this digital world where Google and Facebook increasingly dominate uh, advertising and digital increasingly dominates uh, branding, I would say WPP was sort of in the middle amongst its peers. It had made quite a few acquisitions. Sir Martin uh, Sorrell, he himself has claimed that he's a leader in this transformation, but some other companies and, and rivals would claim that they are moving much more quickly to a, to a world where you're not, it's not a madman world of designing 30-second television spots. 
which is what the old business was built on. It's advising companies on digital transformation, designing their apps, their digital presence, uh, how to uh, track your consumers and serve them better, personalization. These are things that weren't the old advertising industry model. Now, WPP has made a ton of acquisitions in this area, and that's generally how they've adjusted to changes in the industry is acquiring, growing, and kind of shifting with where the client's needs are. But that's, it's such a big entity now, it's become a, quite a slow-moving process. And uh, Sir Martin himself has said, said to me just a couple weeks ago that he doesn't want to move too fast and break too many things because you undercut your own business that way. So it could be that the new leadership of WPP, whoever that turns out to really be, might take a change in tack. The profits have been squeezed out of advertising, haven't they, as the move to digital has happened, because basically Facebook and Google get them all now? Certainly, there's been pressure on margins uh, and also just on the way they do business. It should be said that WPP books a lot of business. They buy a lot of the advertising on Google and Facebook for clients. But of course, companies can go directly to Google and Facebook themselves. This kind of disintermediation is really the challenge, is whether companies will increasingly take their budgets directly to Google and Facebook or to their kind of uh, peers in the industry, if anybody develops some competition for them, who all have tools sort of to help them advertise programmatically on their platforms, which is part of the service that WPP has evolved uh, to take on, as have the other advertising giants. So they all make money doing this, but their margins are being squeezed. What happens to WPP now? I think there's several different possibilities. I mean, this is because this is sort of a, an, an unanticipated scenario. I think WPP is quite vulnerable. If you had a normal succession where you handed it off to, you know, someone who is perceived as a visionary or is ready to take over, you'd be in a less vulnerable spot. But now I think a lot of people will be circling. There'll be clients who might want to leave. There are a couple big clients like Ford and HSBC that are already reviewing their relationship with WPP this year that just happened to be doing that. That's something that clients do every so often. Those are big accounts, and now competitors will have a better chance at them. And I think competitors will go after other clients themselves. I think that uh, they'll feel no uh, compunction about doing so. And the other possibility is WPP could, if it really struggles, could end up being a takeover target. You could see a, a digital consultancy, or you could see an Accenture, which has a market cap of close to $100 billion. And WPP right now has a market cap of just a little over $20 billion as we speak. So you could see possibility even of WPP being swallowed up. Thanks, Gaddy. Thank you, Helen. Next, in an increasingly digital world, postal services everywhere are struggling. The US Postal Service has an extra problem, and that's that it's being criticised for its deal with Amazon to deliver its parcels. President Trump has said that he's going to set up a task force to look at that deal and see whether it's an unfair one, and in particular whether taxpayers are going to be on the hook. Henry Kerr, our economics editor, is in the studio. Henry, why does this even matter when we all just go online nowadays for everything? Well, it matters because there's all this infrastructure and a whole company set up to deliver letters, uh, which is something that's being gradually replaced by the internet. And there's a whole load of workers who have been promised pensions and healthcare benefits to an extent that has not been fully funded yet. The combined deficit for both those factors is about $100 billion. And it certainly matters to them in the long run if the post office fails because they won't be getting their payments. It also matters because the future of the universal service obligation, i.e. the idea that anyone can post anything anywhere at a flat price, 
is something that's very close to consumers' hearts. And it's still to be figured out how exactly that works, how it's funded, what it even applies to in the digital age. The US Postal Service has a special deal with Amazon, I guess, to deliver all these parcels that online shopping produces. And Donald Trump says that it is costing the United States Post Office massive amounts of money just to be Amazon's delivery boy. Is that a fair characterization of this deal? So it's impossible to say for sure whether the deal with Amazon is a fair one. And the reason for that is it's a private deal that's been struck between USPS and uh, Amazon. One of the curious things about the, the USPS is that it is this sort of public entity. It's, it's publicly owned. However, the public doesn't have the ability to scrutinise that deal. The number that President Trump used a couple of weeks ago was based on a Citigroup report which analysed the uh, USPS's parcel business and said that were it covering uh, its pension and healthcare payments properly, it would have to charge more in the vicinity of 150 uh, on every parcel. And the other thing they looked at was the allocation of costs. Uh, the curious thing about USPS is that it's got one side of its business, which is this monopoly, which has been granted by the government on first class post, on access to people's letterboxes. And the other side of the business is parcels, and it competes with UPS and FedEx and, and so on. And in order to determine the fair price, the regulator has to say how much of its costs apply to the letters business and how much applies to the parcels business. And there's been some dispute about how to do that properly. And if you believe the likes of UPS, the post office's competitors, they'll say, well, lots of their costs uh, relate to parcels now because it's a growing part of the business. And so they should be charging more. And it's unfair having this government competition, uh, which is underpriced, uh, competing with the, with the private sector. I mean, here in the UK, the Royal Mail was privatised. And uh, many people would say that was quite a good idea. Why does the US not look at privatising its own postal service? So there are certainly a lot of people, especially conservatives in Washington, D.C., who do call for privatisation. And the US is well behind Europe in this regard. Every EU country has some degree of market competition for post and the US doesn't. The US is unique in having monopoly access to post boxes, i.e where people receive their post uh, in, in boxes at the end of their drives, often in the US. And I think the main factor is essentially gridlock in DC, that there are powerful interests on, on both sides of this debate. The unions involved are very powerful. And it's very difficult even to get small reforms approved, because often that involves, you know, the closure of a post office, which isn't be really being used by many people anymore. But that's typically resisted uh, by the people involved. And then there's also the people who use the post service, the, the clients, who are obviously resistant to prices going up. So there's just a lot of people with stakes in this fight. And often in the US political system, that lends itself to gridlock more uh, than in systems elsewhere. I mean, uh, the UK carried out its privatisation relatively rapidly uh, after it was suggested under the coalition government, I think, certainly compared to the time period that people have known about USPS's problems and not properly solved them. Does this idea of a universal service guarantee even make sense now in the internet age? Wouldn't it be better to think about people having access to broadband? Like if you're going to make sure that everyone has access to something, maybe it should be broadband anyway. That, that's certainly the next frontier of the universal service debate. In Britain, there is going to be a variant on that a guaranteed access to at least a 10 megabit broadband speed. And certainly that would seem to make sense. The whole reason the universal service obligation was dreamt up was to keep all people involved in the economy you know the arteries of the information economy were in the in the postal system nowadays that's not the case certainly in, in america of all letters delivered 60 percent are actually 
direct mail advertising and only 3% of people writing to each other. Clearly, what people need to participate in the modern economy is more an internet connection than access to post boxes and so on. So that's certainly where the debate's going. And then the question is, what do you do with the postal service that you've already got when, when you're thinking about those, those arguments? If you were the boss of USPS, what would you do? First thing you'd do? Well, there's certainly a lot of problems at the at the company and a lot to think about. But the first thing I do, of course, is make sure that everyone gets their copy of The Economist on time. Thanks, Henry. Thank you. What's your experience of the US Postal Service and what would you do to change it? And what are your thoughts about Sir Martin Sorrell's departure from WPP? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com or you could even put a letter in the post. Finally, according to the latest figures, China's economy grew by 6.8% in the first quarter of this year compared to the first quarter of last year. That beat forecasts. The world's second biggest economy is looking robust despite the threat of a trade war with America. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, is on the line from Shanghai. Simon, are these figures an accurate gauge of the health of China's economy? Well, there's always a lot of skepticism about the quality of Chinese economic data, but there are also a lot of independent indicators to to show that the economy really has been firing, if not on all cylinders, certainly on a lot of cylinders for the last couple of years. There was more skepticism about the growth data overstating the reality, say, three years ago, whereas if anything over the past year, the real growth numbers might actually be understating the, the health of the economy. If you look at the nominal growth figures, uh, we're talking about double-digit growth. Corporate revenue growth has been very strong. And this is strength that has spanned across a, a wide range of sectors from heavy industry through to services and IT. Do you see any sign that the trade tensions with the US are starting to, to bite? There's no sign yet that the tensions are really causing any serious problem. I mean, that's to be expected, of course, because although Donald Trump has announced tariffs, they've, they've not yet been implemented. So trade growth has actually still been very strong for China. Uh, the real concern is how things develop, and not just the tariffs, you know, more broadly, uh, restrictions on Chinese investment, restrictions on Chinese businesses doing, uh, you know, operations in America. So that is a looming concern, uh, but not anything that's really shown up in the data just yet. One of the long-standing concerns about China has been sort of unproductive growth. So not so much anything about fiddling figures, but things like, you know, roads to nowhere, bridges that no one's using, uh, vast tower blocks that no one lives in, even cities that no one lives in. Uh, is there any sign that that sort of pointless, centrally driven growth is winding down in favour of more productive growth? There have actually been some very positive developments in the way that China has managed its financial system and more broadly its its investment in debt over the last couple of years. So, you know, going into 2016, China had deemed that debt was a, a serious risk and they made deleveraging a top priority. That's something that continued through last year and into this year. It's still too early to say that they've, you know, really solved the problem. It's it's something that's going to take more than one or two years to fix. But if you look at the outstanding amount of debt relative to GDP, it's actually stabilized uh, over the past year. Now, partly that's because China has had some good luck because the external environment has been so strong and um, exports have been strong. But also it's because the government really has made some progress uh, on controlling the overall leverage ratio, uh, reining in some of the most indebted borrowers, directing credit to some of the more productive sectors. And all of this has added up to 
help to stabilize the debt ratios. They've also made some progress in terms of capitalizing the financial system. So it's, it's too soon to say that they're out of the woods. But if you look at the overall numbers, they are less worrying than they were a few years ago. I think that at the same time as the GDP figures, they also released a new jobless figure. What did that show? Well, that's right. So in the past, they released a jobless figure, which was very limited, just confined to some of the biggest cities. They're now releasing a a national survey of of the unemployment rate. And that's important because the government has been talking for a while about emphasising the the quality, not just the quantity of growth. And if you want to target that, you really do have to look at what's happening in terms of the employment scene. And with this number, we will, in theory at least, have a more reliable handle on what's actually happening with the job situation in China. It's very stable, as a lot of Chinese economic data often is, but it does suggest that the policy target is beginning to shift away from uh, growth at all costs to growth that actually matters insofar as it's, it's generating jobs for people. So I see that the figure that they've come up with is 5.1%, but of course, it's very hard to do comparisons, even if you use international standards with uh, unemployment rates, because countries' economies are so different. And in a country like China, where there are still people living on the land, you're going to have people in quite unproductive jobs, but or work that don't count as unemployed. The point really is over time, isn't it? It allows you to set a benchmark and China can see how it's, how it's going in the future compared with that. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. It's key to have that kind of benchmark, given that we still have, you know, nearly one half of the population living in rural areas. There's a lot of slack. So if the urban situation isn't great, it's easy for people to go back to, to the countryside uh, where they might very quickly fall out of the data. So you wouldn't necessarily see a big spike in the surveyed unemployment rate when in fact you'd have a lot of people doing you know, less valuable jobs in the countryside. So it, it will not pick up that kind of distress in the way that unemployment figures in developed economies do. But nevertheless, the shift towards a focus on jobs as a core target for the economy and for economic planners is significant. And as more and more of the population does migrate to urban areas, this is the kind of economic figure that will be much more crucial for measuring the health of the Chinese economy. You've been travelling outside Shanghai recently, haven't you? And I was just wondering if anything you saw struck you as emblematic of the way China's economy is going. I was just in Wuhan, which is a major city in central China. And you can just go back about three or four years and find a a whole series of articles about Wuhan by a lot of different media organisations holding it up as emblematic of China's economic woes, of its excessive debt and leverage. And when I was just there, I was struck by the fact that so many of these investments, which seemed to be quite speculative just a few years ago, in in this short amount of time, really are beginning to mature. So you see a subway system that's beginning to fill up. You see new industrial parks that have lots of uh, companies that have set up shop in them. So it's, it's a classic case of the sort of story that a few years ago seemed quite worrying and in a relatively short period of time seems a lot more promising. Simon Rabinovich, thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. 